Turn Up The Talk podcast, tackling mental health together. Hey everyone, and welcome to Turn Up The Talk. You're joined by Pat Clifton and Lockie Drew Morris, but no Luke and Brady today as he's um, MIA at training once again, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, what are we going to do with him, eh? Yeah, what can we do? But a uh, pretty big week for us with Turn Up The Talk. Thanks to everyone who got behind our uh, bushfire post. We ended up raising $1,445. So keep posted on that. We'll have a, a post out showing our legitimates and actually donating it. Uh, we'll, I think we'll split it up into threes with the RFS, families affected by the bushfires and, of course, a little wildlife. Weren't expecting that. <laughs> we no, we sort of said amongst ourselves, oh, we'll be happy for four or four or five hundred and then yeah plus a grand so yeah it cool. was, uh, yeah it's good it was good um so thanks to everyone who got behind it's a pretty worthy cause and um there's a lot of good stuff going on around the eastern suburbs with the bushfires yeah a lot of people are getting behind it so it's pretty cool we um we've also set a date for our lunch yeah oh. that'll be good fun a big fundraiser lunch yeah so we'll keep you guys up to date when we know some more information but looking around the second week in march on a friday arvo i think friday arvo yeah That'll be good fun. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. We'll have a few uh, guest speakers. We'll try to get a singer there. Should be good fun. And you're going to sing? Oh, it depends if they want me to. Maybe yeah. karaoke. Karaoke. What's your go-to song? Um, oh, hotel. Motel, motel. Motel, motel. Up at the Robin Hood on a Friday. <laughs> what about you? Oh, I don't mind a bit of cold chisel in the karaoke. Oh, K-Sand, Flame Trees. What Go about, um, what have you been up to? Not much, man. Just working. Enjoying, no uni, no nothing. Yeah, no uni. How good is <laughs> so it? good. Oh, I haven't even checked my emails yet. I got an email the other day saying I got to pick subjects. I'm like, oh. I haven't checked if I passed. I'm uh, too, I just haven't looked at all. You might need to um, you might need to do that if you went re-enroll. Off to Bali today though. Pretty exciting. Are you? Yeah. Oh, here you are. I am off off this afternoon. Um, pretty big step for me. Haven't gone away since since America. Oh yeah. When I okay. came home early, so it should be um, should be pretty cool. You'll be good. pretty excited. You'll be fine. Who are you flying? Classic Jetstar. Jetstar. Yeah. Okay. Cheapest chips. Where, where are you sitting? Shit service. Okay. Uh, tucked. Uh, aisle. Aisle, aisle seat. Yeah. Aisle seat, yeah. All the... Um, try to get the exit row, but they're all taken. Mm. Maybe ask for a business upgrade. Do they have business challenges? <laughs> yeah. It's probably not much, but... You get, a, blank, you get a blanket. <laughs> <laughs> blanket, maybe one of those eye pillows. All I can say is no. Give it a shot. Yeah. Maybe show my Good luck. Secret. Good luck. I'll let you know how it goes. Before we get into it, we are a mental health podcast. There's some content discussed today may be triggering for some. If you're not feeling up to it, hit pause, come back another day. We're not going anywhere. Today, we're joined by a pretty cool guest. Uh, his name's Joe Williams. He's played 49 NRL games. He's had a few professional boxing bouts, but more importantly to our topic, he's got his own organization called The Enemy Within, and he's just recently won the award for suicide prevention around that work within Australia. So, Joe Williams, thanks for joining us, mate. Uh, pleasure to be on. What have you been up to? Give us a bit of a rundown. I'm, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bush boy, so I live out in Dubbo now, um, out in Radri country, and I, I've always, I've always been a, I guess, a country boy at heart. I grew up in the, in I was born in Cowra, grew up in Wagga before I moved to Sydney as a, as a uh, seventeen year old, uh, and then I sort of, I spent ten years in Sydney, but I always craved to come home. Uh, yeah. Back back to the country, like I guess you know, my two oldest kids living in the in the city now, and 
and they can't stand the country because it's too slow. But as a bush boy, I, I can't stand the city because it's too fast, you know. So yeah, uh, I've, I've been home a little bit. Uh, I was out on country last week doing some cultural stuff, and and if I'm honest, um, with the healing property around what what I do, uh, being out on country where there's no phone reception, where you can just quieten down the mind a little bit and and get back to your cultural roots. That's that's what's been the biggest healing for me. So after after being I guess um, honoured with winning that award last week um, with the Australian Mental Health Prize with Christian Morgan, um, I I had a few few days thankfully um, to that, that set aside that I was allowed to go back out back out the bush and and just reset things and and then I'm back on the road this week. Yes, obviously you just touched on that award. That's Absolutely awesome! Congratulations. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What work was that? Is that with your? Was that with your book? Was that with your wellness camps? What was that with? I think it, it involves it involves everything you know that I've done. I've, I've been my my organisation started uh, back in two thousand and fourteen, the Enemy Within, and I call it the Enemy Within because you know, being as a as an ex footy player and as an ex boxer, you come up against some pretty formidable opponents but nothing compares to the enemy I fight inside my head every day and that's still today so for the work that we've done with the enemy within we've we've been to over 150 communities around the country um and just again spreading that message of of wellness and well-being but 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 more so because I've struggled with it pretty much all my life um it's I I I share the tips and tools that that I've used for a a massive portion of my life in how to get well uh you know we've we've got the clinical side of things which is which is fantastic but in a lot of the remote communities that i go to a lot of the communities don't have the services so it's about uh reconnecting to the old values um traditional values of of our our first people in the country um learning to live with those values and and connecting to them a little bit more so you just mentioned you you battle mental health for most of your life and you still do can you give us an insight and a rundown as to your battles with mental health yeah it, it come off and i guess it, it um you know it, it makes a bit more sense now uh with the research that's been done around around head trauma and concussions um it come off the back of a fairly severe concussion when i was about 13 um and that there was there was multiple head knocks leading up to that obviously being a young young footy player and um not the biggest guy in the world, so you get you get banged around a little bit on the field. But um, on the back of a fairly significant concussion at a young age, um, it started a, a dialogue inside my head that that was a hell of a lot of confusion at, at first. And and the dialogue which I which I talk to with people who who have experienced concussion will understand it. You don't know what it is or why it is. It's like a, a deja vu type feeling. You know, your mind talks to you a little bit. And on the back of my first concussion, my, my head started to talk to me in an extremely negative way. It started to question my, my worth. It started to question and, and challenge every decision I made every single day and, and planted thoughts of, and ideas of, of, of ending my life you know, every single day. Since the age of 13, I've battled with a negative dialogue inside my head that has told me to end my life. It has put thoughts, plans and ideas of suicide every single day. And I guess, you know, you're looking back at living my life. I was lucky enough to be a professional athlete for, you know, 15 years. Um, 
with very, very little clinical help, not because I didn't want the help, but if we think there's a stigma about mental health now, think about what it was like 20 odd yeah, years ago. 100%. You know, yeah. like no one spoke about it, especially in the, in the, in the rugby league sense. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough man sport. You get out there and you rip in as much as you can. So like I was trying to hold down my spot at I was as a young first grader. I didn't want to come out and say, listen, I've got, I've got something inside my head telling me to kill myself. Yeah. Um, you know, they would look like, looked at me like I had four heads, you know, back yeah. then. So, um, I had to, I had to come up with different ways to, uh, silence what it was that I was going in, going on inside my head. And, and for a long time, I used substance. For a long time, I band-aided it with self-medication of, of taking as much alcohol and drugs as I possibly could just to quieten it down. But it wasn't until I got sober almost 14 years ago did the, did the, the noise inside my head really exacerbate and get us, you know, extremely loud. Um, that's when I knew that I needed to get some, some, you know, some help around what it was that I was going through. Yeah, and you just mentioned there you turned to drugs and alcohol and what effect now, saying 14 years on, being sober, if you look back to that time, you mentioned you, you we were talking earlier, you won the premiership with the Roosters in the under-20s and you said that week was a bit of a party <laughs> and I'm sure you'd have some stories to tell. But if you look back now to when you were through that stage and you were abusing substances and alcohol, how did that impact your mental health, positively or negatively? Well, you're looking back in hindsight, and 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 that's that's a great thing about hindsight, you know. Like, is that I I don't understand today when people are struggling in challenging times with their mental health, they go and get off their heads, go and get blind trunk and off their heads. And and what I can do is relate to that because that's what I did for so long. But now that I understand what it actually does, I can't understand why people do it. Like. It's, it's just a matter of education and awareness. What we're doing is essentially we're, we're trying to treat depression with a depressant. Like it, yeah, it yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people in today, and, and let's let's be frank, um, mental health is, is through the roof at the moment. And what I do see a hell of a lot when I help people struggling with their tough times I'm helping people struggling with their tough times on Mondays and Tuesdays. Yeah. Wednesdays and Thursdays tends to settle down a little bit. So you've got to probably question your lifestyle. Or are you actually having ongoing mental health issues or are you on a drug come down? Yeah. No. So, and, and why are we using drugs or why are we using alcohol? Like, like I used it to cover up what was happening inside my head for a hell of a long time. Um, and I get that and I understand that and I own that. But now that I don't drink and I don't take drugs, there's a better way and a, and, a, and a more effective way to be able to do it than walking that tightrope every single time you go out because and it's it's an accepted way of life. Yeah. You know, we, we've got – people ask me all the time, does rugby league have an alcohol and drug culture? No, rugby league doesn't have an alcohol and drug culture. Rugby league doesn't have an alcohol and drug culture. Australia has an alcohol and drug problem, mm. you know, and, and and that's what we need to address and look at, um, you know, with, with our soaring mental health rates across the country. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that was, that's a very good point. It's just not rugby league, it's Australian society. And it's not just rugby league players, it's all young people as well that are going out and getting drunk and abusing substance. And so I think that's a very important issue that we need to take ownership of, not as a sport, but as a country. 
I think, as a country man. Like, yeah. The thing is that it's it's accepted, it's applauded, it's even advertised. Yeah. You know, like, uh, well, what was it? Two years ago, the State of Origin had VB as their major sponsor. Yeah. Like, we got to, we got to get better as a society, and I, I honestly think we are. Like the amount of people that you you flick through your newsfeed now, there's the the amount of people who are into wellness and well being and fitness and and just looking and feeling good is probably living proof that the country is changing and adapting. Um, where you know you look at you know my old man's day when you know he he played in the the old Winfield Cup, you know they yeah. All the game of cigarettes and and a few bits after the game and all that you know like it, it's unheard of now. Yeah, it's probably it's probably living proof that we are moving forward. You spoke about your suicidal thoughts before, and you say that you've been battling them for a while. There are some people listening to this that have probably gone through the exact same thing. Can you give those people something to take home or something important that you would say about getting through those tough times? You know, I, I mentioned in my um, acceptance speech the other way, um, it is, I said, I'm, I'm living proof that times can get better with work. You know, it, it's important to say as well that back in 2012 when I had my, had my suicide attempt, I thought with every being in my body that my life was so worthless and so pointless that I couldn't go on. And in that moment... I was convinced that I didn't need to live anymore. And, and, and that's what people don't understand about... People think that depression is just a bad mood or a bad day. You know, it is... Depression and these type of mental health challenges robs you of reality. You know, so, so for me, I, I constantly still have to work and I still have bad days and I still have suicidal ideation. But I know that it's not real. I, when I'm not well, I've got to put into play the things that keep me well. You know, everyone has yeah. their ways of feeling good, their ways of being better, their ways of living a better life. We just have to concentrate more on doing that. You know, if it's bushwalking that keeps me well, go and do it a hell of a lot more. If it's reading that keeps someone well, go and read more. You know, it's, we've got to look at the things that make us, us as individuals better with our well-being every single day and do that more. Yeah. And on going back to the alcohol kind of culture within Australia, obviously on this podcast, we want to try just be ourselves, be normal and not try act like we're all perfect. You know, we'll, we'll be honest, we still go out on a weekend and have a few beers. How do you think you can get that balance of, you know, having that lifestyle of having a, having a beer and a laugh with a mate, but then also maintaining that, that lifestyle of getting your mental health on track and your physical health on track? Well, I think it comes down to the individual. Um, for me, I couldn't, I couldn't walk the tightrope. You know, for me, it was too dangerous. Yeah. So um, I am an alcoholic. I am an addict, um, but I'm someone who's been in recovery for over 14 years now so i haven't been sober that, that and clean those entire times that's coming up to 14 years that i've been sober um and for me i i can't tempt it so there's others out there that you know guys, you know guys and, and 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 ladies as well that can go out and have 14 14 15 beers a bottle of wine mm. and get up to work the next day and it doesn't affect them mm, like yeah. there's you know people think that 
an alcoholic is someone who who drinks in a park or it, it affects their life beyond yeah. control. Um, an alcoholic is someone who struggles with the with the mental health or, or with the with the illness um, of addiction, you know, and it's um, and and alcoholism. Um, and, and people don't realise that. And, and, you know, alcoholism is, is one of those things that it's, it's a chemical imbalance that, you know, once, once alcohol enters the body, um, it sets off that, that impulsion to want to keep going more. And, and as we say in AA, um, you know, where one beer is too many and a hundred is not enough. You just got to, you, you, your body wants more, your body wants more. So it comes down to, I think, the individual. Um, if, if it is affecting your life, it is, is affecting those around you, if it is affecting the way that you operate with your work, with your lifestyle, with your family, then you've got to consider, is it yeah. an issue? You know, we've got to consider what's good for us, not what's good for our mates. Because I've lost mates. I've lost mates because of I live, you know, the, the, the way that I live now. But at the end of the day, your real mates will probably support you yeah 100 percent. if it is yeah if it is a challenge for you and if it is coming down to these tough times your real mates will support you i think you know johnny something was was really good for that with me um in my early days of sobriety at south and sato and i um we sort of come into the grade at the same time and you know i was off it for you know a, a year and like there was times when i you know what i really feel like getting back on it again and he'd say joe it's not worth it You've been off it for so long now. Yeah, you don't need to do it. And 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 it was those type of mates um, that really encourage that way of life that that help you through it. The ones that go, nah, it's alright. Come on, let's go and have a beer. Let's get you know, let's get bent. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that you probably don't need in your life. Looking back on losing those friends, how do you how do you view that? I mean, you just said before that the real ones will stick by it. At the time, did you think as though it was a big deal or did you always have the mindset of, well, if they're my friends, they'll be there for me? Well, let's 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 be, be a little bit honest with you as well. It wasn't just friends, it was family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, and it wasn't that I lost family. It was that I chose to distance myself from that life. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, who loses out or who gets affected most it may not affect them in their life and what they do. And, and, and we have to realise that other individuals live their life the way that they want to live it. For me, I made a decision that sobriety was most important for me and I had to do anything and everything that kept me sober. And like I said, it meant losing friends, it meant losing family, it meant distancing myself from the people who I cared about, who I thought cared about me too. Um, but again, there's... There's a great saying when they talk about, um, and it's three words, reason, season, lifetime. There's people in your life for a reason, for a season, or for a lifetime. Um, and, you know, I'm someone who lives by that. And, and somebody, people come into my life to teach me different things. And people come into my life to stay, or people come into my life to just bounce in and bounce out. You know, mm-hmm. and I accept that. And, and that's, again, if I put my well-being at the forefront, and, and, and let's be honest, it wasn't until many, many, many years after I got sober did I understand that I was band-aiding with substance for what was going on with my head. You know, if we look at it, the head was probably the issue before the substance, you yeah. know, so but they work hand in hand. We had a great chat with Gussie Wallen, the founder of the Gotcha for Life Foundation, who's doing great work with their Tomorrow Man and the Gotcha for Life scholarships and 
he actually did a series on Aussie masculinity a few years ago and he said that or we alluded to that that was the main issue with young men not speaking up that they couldn't feel vulnerable now you there was an article last year where you spoke about your relationship with your dad and you spoke about how you were always trying to put up a put on a front to and make him proud and then you detailed how one Saturday afternoon I think it was you 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 and him just broke down together do you first of all can you sort of tell us about that experience and do you think that's something that does stop a lot of young men from talking hearing you talk about that chokes me up you know like um I'm I'm someone you know call it a soup call whatever you want but I'm someone who's who's highly highly emotional and that's all right like um I'm I'm okay if people call me a silk because it just means that I'm passionate about things. It just means that I feel. um, And when I feel, I feel deeply. And this is the thing, right? Um, I'm in schools every day of the week, 300-odd days in the year. And and this this rot of not showing our emotions is something that's been – it's been brainwashed into us. It's been – we've been, um, you know, taught that – we, we don't need to show our sensitive side, mate. I think there is absolute strength in vulnerability. Being vulnerable and being able to talk about how you feel and what you do is something that's it's extremely important because, as, as, as you said, like there, there is so many people that, that are struggling in the silence and don't like to talk about it. My old man is a, is a staunch dude. You know, he, he is someone who he's someone who yeah, let's just say he's someone who's staunch. <laughs> uh, and and you know, he said to me one day, he said, you know what, I'm gonna get your son and I'm gonna turn him into it an angry little boy, like with his boxing and his sport and all that. He said, Because you're sensitive, you're too sensitive, you're like your mum. And I said, You know what, Dad, that's all right. You know, and, and you don't need to untrain that you know because and 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 he and he got that as well but you know and and i was always i guess i was always critical that you know by myself and and when i'm thinking deeply about things i was always critical that i couldn't be emotional um but then i realized well dad had to grow up at a very very young age because he lost his dad at nine so he had no one to teach him anything about being a man um, and the traditional rite of passage for us was all stolen and taken away. So we, he had the, 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 he, he had no one to teach him how to be a man, you know, and what, what an actual man looks like. Um, and it's, I, I really think it was, it was after my suicide attempt, did, did me and my dad really, uh, really bond as, as men as well. And looking at it now, um, my dad is, is, hyper hyper emotional like me as well um it's just that he's been i guess trained or conditioned in a world where you can't show it so you know i'm i'm happy now that that we can have those conversations and have those conversations about vulnerability and you know what my dad is the the smartest person that i've ever met in my entire life and didn't go a day past year eight at school as far as intelligence wise and even now that you know, we're getting closer emotional intelligence that that he is able to feel vulnerable in different times as well. Um, we can have those conversations. It's breaking barriers. What it's doing is 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 helping us um, 
helping us be the men that we should be, not the men that we're taught to be um, in, in of of society. And, and, and that's really important. Yeah, 100%. Just going back one question, when you were talking about when you weren't sober, you didn't realize the effect it was having on your mental health until after you became sober. If you didn't realize the effect it was having on your mental health, what actually led you to decide, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to, I'm going to get sober. What was that? Was there a kind of specific point in your life where you were like, enough is enough? Or was it a defining, a defining moment? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was, I write about it in my book. It it was, it was a good friend of mine who's actually, who's actually, um, he's a rooster man as well from the Eastern suburbs. Um, Chris Ferguson, he's a he's a photographer. Fergo and I were travelling down to Yas Touch Knockout, and Fergo and I were uh, in those early days. He was my he was one of my right hand men um, with partying and stuff like that. And he was he was probably ten years older than me, and and you know he was he, he was from that old crew that sort of you know did the did a lot of the things that that I I hadn't or wasn't doing at the time, and and you know. It was on in the back seat of the car, and and Yas Touch Knockout. I don't know if, if you guys know about Yas Touch Footy Knockout. It's it's on the Australia Day long weekend. It's for, for as long as I can remember, I've been playing touch footy in the in the in the Australian Touch Footy Knockout. Uh, the the Yas Touch Footy Knockout down at Yas, and and you travel teams travel from from all over New South Wales to play in this carnival, and and it was always a party. You know, ever since yeah. I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old, I was, I was going over there from Wagga, sneaking drinks, and then as an adult, ripping right in, you know. And and it was in the back seat of the car with Fergus. I said, oh, mate, it's going to be a great weekend, this one is. And he goes, you know what, I don't think it'll be like any other weekend. And little did I know is that, remember, remember I, I, I told you about the friends who support you and the friends who don't support you? Yeah. Fergo had been sober for two years and I didn't even notice. So I was one of those friends who wasn't supporting because I was worried about still partying and going out. And, 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 and he said something really important to me later, later on the track. He said, the guys who you hang around with in the pubs aren't your mates because they're still in the pubs telling the same shit stories, the same bad jokes 10 years later. You know, And, and he was exactly right. Like, I hadn't seen him for two years just because he was sober and on a different path. Yeah. And... I, I was too busy, you know, in the in the party mode to, to realise it. And, you know, we started having the conversation and Fergo was like, you know what, my life's changed. It's better now and um, it's better than it was. And, you know, and he just started to get into my mind a little bit. And and if we look at Fergo, who was 10, 10 years old than me, was an absolute mirror image of what I was, right? But he was just 10 years older. And then... We were having the conversation. It was like, you know what? And he taught me and told me about alcoholism and addiction and and how his life was just better without it. You know, doesn't matter if you're a garbage driver or or a garbage truck driver, if you're if you're a lawyer, if you're a judge, if you're, you're anything, your life gets better without alcohol and drugs. Um, and he started to talk to that, and he started to plant the seed to me. And and I, by that by that weekend, I was like, you know what? maybe I should get off it too. Yeah. And, 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 and what happened was I said to him, that's it. After this weekend, I'm getting, I'm getting off it. After this weekend, I'm going to come to, you know, um, I'm going to go to one of those AA meetings and, and, and I'm going to, I've got an issue with it and I didn't realize and I wanted my life to be better. So for me, um, 
what happened was he said to me, he goes, you're going to get off it after the weekend. Why not get off it now? And, and I wasn't strong enough. But, you know, I was like, no, no, no. I'll have one last go one tonight. Last, yeah. <laughs> one last year. Uh, one last rip into it. Yeah. <laughs> and I did, don't worry. <laughs> but uh, but uh, then I, I, I went to my first ever AA meeting um, that Monday when I got back to Sydney. Um, and like I said, I, I got about 11 months sober. And it was just continually learning about myself, continually learning about what I was band-aiding, continually learning about me as a person. Uh, and then I end up, after 11 months, I got stuck back into it and it went on like a, a month-long bender. You know, um, I wasn't obviously, you know, on it all that time, but it, but it was, it was, it was, it went for about a month long. And I went, you know what? I mean, back exactly. I, I went back to drinking. And I thought that I could manage it because I'd been off it for 11 months. You know, I've yeah. been off I'll, I'll, I'll just manage it now. But I realized that with alcoholism, um, as soon as you put that substance into your body, it takes off exactly from where it was. And, mm-hmm. you know, he said to me, you got a, you got a car with 100,000 Ks on it. You put it, in the, put it in the garage for 10 years. You take it out. It don't go back to zero. Yeah. It's still on 100,000 Ks. It's yeah. ready to just take off for exactly where you left it. And I was living proof of that. And you also mentioned in an article I read the difference between, so you've played NRL and you've done boxing, the difference between the culture in NRL and boxing and how much boxing actually taught you. Tell us a bit about that. You don't see many drunken boxers, do you? You know, you many, know. many boxers that, you know, and even, even, even many boxers that are fat and sloppy these days. You know, boxers are athletes. Boxers train hard. Boxers really, really rip in. Um, and 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 boxing. If I'm honest, I was playing. You know, I played. I played in the top grade of four, five, six, seven, and you know, a little bit in 2008. And I didn't learn how to actually train properly until I became a boxer. You know, if I if I boxed before I was a rugby league player, I would have been a better rugby league player because I would have been mentally stronger and I would have been, a, you know, physically um, hardened and physically be able to get through tougher times. But but boxing taught me how to mentally go into a deep place where you are challenged and fight your way out of it. You know, when you're in a boxing ring, you got someone trying to knock your teeth out. You ask yourself some questions. Yeah. You know, and and I had to ask those questions deep within myself. Boxing. As a rugby league player, even when things were tough, you know, for me it was um, challenging, challenging times. And for as a boxer, boxing t- taught me how to search deep within myself and find some resilience that I can fight back, which in turn helped me to live stronger mentally outside the ring. You know, if if boxing was like my mental health challenges. In a boxing ring, you can stop, you can get out of the ring, or you can wait till the bell goes. Outside in the real world, when I had every single day these thoughts and ideas and plans of uh, opting out of life, you know, through by ways of suicide, um, it taught me how to fight back against those tough times. And also, you mentioned how much your culture and connecting back with your culture helped with you. Talk to us about that as well. Yeah, I say it all the time, you know. Um, AA, I was in AA and, and, and NA for a long time, um, you know, and, and, and still go to meetings when, you know, when needed and all that sort of stuff. But 
AA and NA gave me the tools of life to live, tools of life. Culture, law and ceremony taught me how to live with those tools. You know, when we look at, um, it's just, it's something about being out in nature, being out in bush, being out in doing um, cultural practice. And, and and I guess, you know, fast forward to right now, I'm, I'm, I've just finished a, um, a graduate certificate at Wollongong Uni around trauma recovery and all of the science that and research that points to recovery of trauma and reversing trauma is around cultural practice, is around the stuff that we've always done for thousands of years as Aboriginal people. Um, if if Aboriginal people had zero suicides pre-colonisation, now we've got the highest rates in the world. In 230 years, something's gone wrong. You know, for 100,000 plus years, what they were doing was working. What we're doing now is not working. I remember in my backyard when I was when I was mowing the lawn one day, and and I said to myself, "What what would my ancestors, what would our old people have done um, to get through what we've done?" Because I was just coming down from medication, and it was coming down to get off one medication to go onto another one. Um, and what I realised was that there's certain practices in cultural practice that are different forms of meditation. And then there's obviously things like exercise when they would have, would have been hunting and walking country, right? So I looked at it and I say, if I'm in a depressive moment, because I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder, extreme lows and extreme highs. So I look at it when I'm low, I exercise, which they would have done. And when I'm high, I meditate to pull myself back down, which they would have done. So I, I use uh, cultural practice. And, and for me, um, it has worked too many times for me to question it. Yep. You know, there are times I get in my car and I literally, and, and I'm lucky that my missus, she goes, it's time for you to go bush. You know, get swag in the car and go out for a couple of days and just recalibrate yourself. Um, I've been in my car driving away, not knowing whether I'll come back or not because I've been so down, so low, so depressed, so suicidal. Literally looking in my revision mirror in tears, not knowing whether I'd come home to my kids. I get out there, do what I've got to do, and it recharges my batteries. Like yeah. I said, it worked for me too many times for me to question it. That's uh, pretty refreshing, right, to hear about someone like yourself who's so well-known and but you still go through those struggles. And I think that that's going to make this whole mental health taboo topic a lot easier to talk about. So thank you for sharing that. We uh, put up on our Instagram the other day some fan questions. We uh we're, we told everyone that we we're having you on and a couple of people come back so here we go one the of dodgy them ones, yeah sorry i hope there's no dodgy ones no there's no dodgy <laughs> ones we've we've called we've called the dodgy ones um so the first one was how do you ask a friend if they are doing all right without pushing it obviously you've been with your thoughts your suicidal thoughts you've been on one side how do you go about the other side yeah i um i plant the seed i plant the seed for them because let's not forget Stigma isn't, isn't about what actual people think about us. Stigma is about what our mind is convincing us that what people think about us. Yeah. You know, um, so in reality, you would ask 10 people, hey, I'm not well, I think I'm going to end my life. 10 people will say, what can I do to help you? You know, that's, you know, the stigma is in our own mind these days rather than what actual people think because of the, the awareness and education uh, place that we've got to, which is fantastic. What I do is I plant the seed. 
because I know that if someone keeps coming to me, you got to talk to me, you got to talk to me, you got to tell me this, what's wrong with you, this is what we're going to do. This Everything inside my mind is telling me, tell that idiot to get out of my face. Mm, yeah. I, don't, I, I know that they're trying to help me, but my mind won't let me see it that way. My mind is telling me that they're judging me. All right, And that's what people don't understand is that we think judgment first, even when our people who love us the most want to care about us the most. Um, so I just plant the seed. I'm like, you know what? I've noticed things aren't well with you. I'm here for you if you need a chat. I ain't going to make you talk, but I'm here for you when you are. And then I just... I just observe a little bit, you know, so I'm, I'm, and again, yeah, mental, mental illness conditions are framed as a deficit in the Western society. Um, someone who's got a mental illness has looked at it as a negative. Now for me with bipolar, one of the uh, symptoms of bipolar is extreme observation, right? So that makes me good at my job because <laughs> I, I, I observe everyone. I look at what they write online. I look at how they answer the phone. I look at when they don't turn up on time. You know, I observe things to the nth degree and that's a symptom of my illness. So yeah. for me, like that's a real positive of what I do. So when I do, when I plant the seed, I just sit back and observe a little bit and then just check in again, you know, just check in again, whether it be that night or uh, that next day. And it, the check-in isn't about, hey, let's catch up. We've got to go for a walk. We've got to get you well. The check-in is about, Hey brother, hey sister, how you doing? Um, just thinking about you, hoping all's well. Yeah, and that's it. As you know? simple as that. Because what you what you need to do, what I believe you need to do, is convince the person someone cares, not convince them how to get well. Yeah. Just convince the person that someone cares. Because again, let's look at my experiences. I'm convinced no one cares. I'm convinced everyone is against me. So we just need to plant that seed. To and and again, obviously, when it gets uh, it's gotten to critical stages where I have to help mates, and I I even you know put them in the car and take them to the hospital and and things like that. Um, so th th there's a fine line, um, but it's definitely my ways of I don't by just by not being with someone doesn't mean you're ignoring them. You can still be thinking about them, still caring about them, still making sure that people are safe. Yeah, uh, being right next to them. Yeah, I think the other thing we spoke about, we had Kevin Heath on a few weeks ago and we spoke to him about listening for listening to listen, not yep. listening to respond. And I think that ties in with your observing. Just sit back yeah. and let them come to you but plant the seed that it's okay to talk with you about you know, it. You know, it's a big one, what I learned. Um, I, 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 I've always been a big believer in this, but, but when I heard the, the terminology of it, it really made sense to me. Behaviour is language. You know, by their behaviors, what are they trying to tell you? Yeah. You know, why are they trying to tell you? And, and, and if it's your good friend, you know the circle of friends they're in. You know what they're doing at the weekend. You know that they're having a breakup or they're going through a tough time. So I look at trying to um, pinpoint the exterior issues that are happening to then impact on what's happening to them inside, them, inside their own head. And you mentioned mates. And that brings up the topic of support networks. How important were support networks and still are support networks for you when you are in those, in, you're kind of down in the dumps, you'd say? Mate, I've got about three people. Three people that, because I'm someone who, you know, you know when they, they, always, they always talk about, you know, you've got to have people around you, you've got to have support networks. 
I'm a little bit different. I'm wired a little bit differently than a lot of people. I, I'm a, I'm a loner. You know, when, when people talk about isolation, people say, you know, don't isolate or make sure somebody's with them. I need to be by myself. And, and what I think it, what is more important is, is the relationship of how you know and understand the person that you might be, might be um, you know, working with. So it, it's about understanding what makes someone click. You know, for me, I, I did a podcast with Lifeline recently. Um, it, it was a really, really good chat, actually. And, and they, they asked my missus, they said, um, what do you do to help him? And, and she said, I just leave him alone. And, and people couldn't understand that. Yeah. And, and, and I said to her, I said, what do you do to help me? And she said, I just leave you alone. And she goes, because if I get in your face, you've obviously got some noise going on inside your head. If I get in your face and try and question or try and tell you what to do, then it's just going to make the noise inside your head get worse. So what I do is make sure you're safe. I leave you alone and I keep the kids out of your way. You know, and and that's most important. And what it, what that's doing is is understanding the individual. So everyone's going to react to certain things exactly. differently. Yeah, exactly. It's about understanding. We we talk about I talk about so much about connection in my in my um wellbeing sessions, and people think automatically, "Well, you're an Aboriginal man." Connections about culture. No, connections about people, and understanding people, and understanding their behaviours, and listening and observing their behaviors and what they do and how they do it and how they say it and, and how they react to things. So it's about connection to people and self and everything. We've, uh, we've got another fan question. So I think you've probably alluded to this throughout the whole podcast, but what led, what led to you writing the book? I was, I was over in the States. I was, I was um, doing some work and some touring around with a guy called Kevin Hines. Um, and Kevin Hines has got, uh, I was part of the documentary that, that he did, um, suicide, the ripple effect with, you know, there's, there's some other uh, Aussie guys and, and girls in that as well. Um, and, and Kevin is a, an extreme, an extremely uh, amazing connector when it comes to people and storytelling. And, and, you know, when he was, when we were touring around together, um, Kevin would speak on stage for an hour and then he'd sit down and do a book signing and the people would be out the door with his book. And, and I do my, you know, my 10, 15 minute sort of session with Kevin on stage before Kevin spoke. And then I was just sitting down twiddling my thumbs and people said, well, where, where's your book? And I'm like, again, this was what the head tells us. Yeah. You shouldn't have a book. You know, you're not going to impact on people. Um, but, but people started to say to me, where's your book, Joe? And I'm like, I don't have a book. And they said, well, you should write one. I was like, no, no one would read it. Um, you know, no one would publish it. No one would pick it up. Um, and they said, no, no, no. If if you had a book here, we'd 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 buy it and and we'd want to read it because we want to learn more about your story. And and as an athlete for a hell of a long time that struggled with some stuff that's pretty dark and pretty scary, you've found ways to get through it. So we want to hear about that. Um, and it just planted a seed. And and for me, um, I just started to what was long Facebook statuses to then blogs to then writing chapters of a book. Um, and again, looking at 
the deficit of mental illness, uh, bipolar disorder. When I'm manic, I'm extremely creative. I wrote my first uh, draft of my book in a month. Wow. You know, again, like, you know, 45,000 words yeah. just writing night and day, like not sleeping. Um, again, that's those manic highs is about with bipolar. So I was just getting all the getting all the words down, getting everything down that was out of my head. And then, you know, after a while, we, we, we got a, a literary agent and the agent shopped it around to some publishers. And, you know, we, we went with ABC Books and HarperCollins as, as publishers. And, you know, it's, it's now been, I've had contact from seven countries around the world people that have that have bought it online and it's available in hard copy in australia new zealand america and canada you know it's crazy well it's it's nuts from a guy who um struggled to pass any exams at school i wrote my own book from front to back you know with the help of spell check of course (laughs) (laughs) little shout out for spell check (laughs) Uh, but again like it Things are possible in life. We're just got to rip into them. And, you know, I'm lucky that that I've, I've traveled to, you know, 35, 36 states around America um, sharing my ways to get well. Um, every state in Australia, North and South Island in New Zealand, um, you know, my book's been sold around the world. And it's not about talking about my sport. It's not about talking about, Again, the depths of the dark stuff that I go through. It's about connecting to people, but also sharing tips and tools to help people get well. That's what the most important thing is. I think it's important to touch on that, um, if you don't mind, with the mental health space now, um, there's a hell of a lot of advocates out there that are doing great stuff for mental health and that encouraging conversation, which is great. But, but I've noticed with a lot of the work, a lot of the sessions that I've sat in on and, and, and partnered with people and combined with people is that people get up and just share their pain. They won't share what got them well. You know, it's not about, it's not about um, them not wanting to share that, but I think that the emphasis is around pain. I think we, we need to, um, you know, look at our delivery with what we do and talk about the ways that we get out of things. There's, there's such a thing called vicarious trauma, which is about sharing pain, which other people take that pain on and then affects them um, traumatically as well. So um, when I'm up speaking, yeah, I, I obviously talk about my, my, my stuff that, that, that helped me and uh, put me into some dark times, but I, I center and concentrate a lot of what I do and what I speak about in communities around what it is you have to do or, or how you need to change your lifestyle um, to get well because that's what the most important thing is. Just before we wrap up, speaking there about advice for people struggling, things like that, you spoke about how drugs and alcohol, stepping away from that life helped you. For people listening who are going through a tough time, could you give, say, three or four kind of points as to what really helped you with your your mental health? I think understanding and acceptance. Acceptance was a big one for me. Acceptance was um, accepting that I've got bipolar disorder and suicidal ideation constantly. 
I accepted that that may well be a part of my life until the day that I die. The fact that I don't need to fight against it anymore or worry why it's there or how come it's back. And and for me, I just, you know, what when I'm having a bad day, I accept that I'm having a bad day. I don't, I don't need to do my head over why. I, I just accept that it's a tough time right now and that chemically some things might be going on for me upstairs. What's more important is what I do to get out of it. You know, the, the issue, and again, talking about I may have it till the day that I die, a lot of people struggle with depression because they um, they get they get well for six months and then they spiral back down into a tough place and they go, oh, shit, I'm back here again. How did I get back here? How come I'm here? What am, You know, why yeah. can't I get out get back? Um, you know, where for me, and again, I, I can only speak about my experiences. I tread a very fine line. And I'm, I'm very, very, very self-aware. Um, so I'm lucky that there's there's things that go on in my life so I understand and I pinpoint why. And then I do the things that I've got to do to get me back out of it. I think we concentrate a lot on doing the things that we have to do to get out of it. If, if you're not well, do some exercise. Eat some good food. You know, let's yeah. start to put some positive messaging and some good energy into that brain. So, mate, that'll wrap us up for today. We'd like to say a massive thanks for joining us and a huge congratulations for all the work you're doing, your recent award, and you're an inspiration to us and hopefully we can reach a lot more people through this podcast and they can take some positives out of it. So, thanks heaps. Good luck with what you've got coming up and we'll definitely stay in touch for sure. Thanks, lads. Thanks, heaps. Sorry I'll talk a bit and rumble a little bit too much. No, that's perfect. That was perfect. Uh, We loved it. Anytime. Sweet, mate. Thanks heaps. (laughs) 